I am so glad to share our message for today. And I want to start by giving a huge shout out to our San Jose community, the amazing community that I have the privilege of serving as campus pastor. And I also want to thank you for all those who are a part of our church community who join us online. I am so grateful to be able to worship together today. Now, the last several weeks, we've been going through a series, an incredible series entitled Coming Home. And it's been based on a close study of the parable of the prodigal son found at the end of Luke chapter 15. And as Pastor Herman finished this series last Sunday, he described the invitation that God gives to every one of us to come home to God's house of grace. And that's where I want to start off today, because we're going to be building off of the coming home message series with this message today. And I want to start off by reminding us that the parable of the prodigal son is at the very heart of Jesus's ministry. Jesus is saying, I've come so that you can know that God is a God like this. God is like a father who has a younger son, and the younger son treats him so poorly. He outrageously demands the inheritance before his father has passed away. When the father releases the inheritance to him, he takes off with it, squanders it, breaks his father's heart. And when the son returns, God is a God whose love is so great There's no resentment. There's no attitude. He breaks all propriety. He hitches up his robe. He runs out and embraces his son. He puts the finest robe on his son. He puts a ring on the son's finger to indicate that the son is once again a part of the family. He throws a party and everything is done to restore the son back into the family so that the son would know that he is welcome home. Jesus came so that we could know this God, this kind of love. And of course, as we've looked at the parable of the prodigal son over the last few weeks, there was an elder brother in the story as well. And this elder brother was furious and outraged by the way that the father welcomed the younger son back to his house of grace. And the elder brother represented the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were uncomfortable with Jesus' ministry, with the tax collectors and sinners who were drawn to Jesus to find out more about this love of the Father. And I want to start off today by making one point that flows straight from the parable of the prodigal son. I had the opportunity to share this a few weeks ago in San Jose, and I just want to make the point again for our entire community. If your heart feels drawn to God, if you know that you need God's grace, like that younger son needed God's grace, don't let the elder brothers of this world keep you from coming home to God. Just like in Jesus's day, there are a lot of elder brothers in today's world that claim to represent God, that claim to represent God's heart. But they are people who you can tell are more comfortable with judgment than with grace. They're more concerned about who should stay out of God's family than welcoming people into God's family. And Jesus, in this parable, shows us what God's heart 
is really like. And if you need a relationship with this God of incredible grace that Jesus came to reveal, don't let any person stand in your way. So that's our tie back to the parable of the prodigal son. This description, this expression of a God of incredible love. And now knowing that God is a God of extraordinary grace and that this grace is something that we all need and this world desperately needs, the question that flows from that is how then are we to live? How do we follow Jesus and live as instruments of God's grace in this world as Pastor Herman challenged us all to do last Sunday? And as it turns out, Jesus gives a very interesting and very surprising answer to this question. And he does it in the very next passage after the parable of the prodigal son. So that's going to be our scripture from today. We're going to leave the end of Luke 15, and we're going to start at the very beginning of Luke 16, verses 1 to 9. And I'll go ahead and read that for us. So Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples— there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. All right, what's going on with this parable? In this passage, in this parable that Jesus teaches, there is a dishonest manager, someone who is shady, who frankly is on the brink of committing financial fraud. And this manager works for a very rich man. And the rich man finds out that this manager has not been managing his possessions very well. And so he calls him in and he says, you need to give an account of your management decisions because you are not going to be able to work as manager any longer. And this throws the manager into a financial crisis because he's surrounded by great wealth and he's enjoyed great wealth, but none of it is his own. And so he asks the question, what am I going to do now? How am I going to provide for myself when my time as manager is over? Now, in some ways, I hope you don't identify too quickly with the context of this parable. You're not like, oh, someone committing financial fraud. That sounds like me. Um, because uh, 
and, and I just want to say that if that's you, you identify a little bit with this uh, financial sketchiness, I want to say you're welcome here. Uh, hopefully there's no better place to be uh, this Sunday than in a place where you can open your heart to hear what God might have to say. But the context of this passage is not Jesus saying, if you're into some dubious financial practices to skim a little bit off the top for you, you're in good shape. You're all good. Jesus has a different teaching that he is trying to communicate through this parable. But the genius of this parable is that Jesus creates a context where every single one of us has a reality that matches the dishonest manager in this parable. You see, Every one of us has been entrusted with great wealth. Now, when I say that, that might feel like it's news to you, but I'm not just talking about money, which you may not feel like I have a ton of, because wealth does come in many forms. And there are three kinds of wealth that we all have to at least some extent. And the first is certainly our time, how we spend our minutes, our hours, our days, and really, any day that we wake up and we have a day of life is a gift from God, and we should feel like there is a measure of wealth that comes from that. Second is our individual talents and capabilities. God has made each one of us unique. He's given us choices about what to do and gifts to, to do them with. And third, our resources. Yes, our money. Um, whether we have a lot or a little, and the other possessions that we have in our lives. Time, talent, our resources, financial or otherwise, God has entrusted us to manage these precious things, to make choices about them. And yet, just like the dishonest manager, our time frame for managing these things has a hard end date. We're managers not owners, just like the manager in this passage. The dishonest manager has access to his master's possessions for a time, but then his time as manager ends. And even though he may have been surrounded by great wealth, he can't take any of it with him. The ultimate proof that he was a manager and not an owner is that at some point, all the things that he regarded as wealth can be taken away from him. And that's our situation too. Even though we might like to think that our time is our own, our talents and our gifts are our own, that our money and the money that we have in the bank account is our own, the reality is at some point our lives are going to end. Everything that we have is going to be taken away. And when that happens, there isn't anything that we have right now that is going to be useful or helpful to us when we get to the other side. So our situation is actually quite similar to that of the dishonest manager. Well, what does the dishonest manager do? Before the manager is technically fired, while he still has control over the rich man's estate, he calls in debtors uh, that owe his master, and he gives them ridiculously generous deals um, in order to reduce their debt. So one man owes his master 900 gallons of olive oil. And the manager says, cut it in half. I will cancel 50% of your debt. And another person comes in and owes his master 1,000 bushels of wheat. And the manager says, go ahead, make it 800. I'll cancel 20% of your debt. 
Now, in the time that Jesus was teaching, there was a well-understood code of reciprocity. If someone does something good to you, you are honor-bound to do something good for them in return. And the manager cuts such extraordinarily generous deals that it's clear that it's coming from him, not coming from the master. And so he's created a safety net for himself that these debtors that owed his master now owe a debt of gratitude to him. And when his time as manager is over, he will be welcomed into their homes and provided for. Now, if you think that this plan sounds a little sketchy, it is. The Bible calls him a dishonest manager. But Jesus has a surprising conclusion to this parable. He doesn't say, this guy was a fraud and his scheme blew up in his face and he got what was coming to him. He doesn't say, the rich man dragged the manager to jail where he belonged. Instead, Jesus ends the parable this way. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. What? The dishonest manager is the hero of this parable? And then Jesus teaches us why. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What Jesus is highlighting is that the dishonest manager has done something exceedingly clever and shrewd. Here's the key principle that is embedded in this parable. By his shrewdness, he has transformed temporary resources that did not belong to him into something that would become a permanent blessing. Let me say that again. This is the key principle. This dishonest manager, this is what we should learn from what he did, transformed temporary resources that did not belong to him, and he transformed them into a permanent blessing. So I know that this may not sound amazing yet. So let me give you a modern day version of this parable. True story. So most folks probably are familiar with the game Monopoly. Uh, Monopoly is a board game. You basically are trading, buying and trading properties, uh, trying to accumulate money, and whoever ends with the most money wins. Actually, uh, when I was looking at this version of Monopoly, I was pretty surprised because the back has this tagline, buy, sell, dream, and scheme, bankrupt your opponents to win it all. I'm not even sure what to say about that description. That's probably a different sermon. Uh, but the key point of Monopoly is that in the game, you have access to certain resources, stewardship over properties and money that only have meaning in the context of the game. So for example, here is $100 in Monopoly money. And I just want to see, is there anyone that would be willing to trade me $20 of US currency for this $100 of Monopoly money? I mean, this is, five, this is a five times bigger number than a $20 US bill. And I'm guessing that I'm not going to have any takers because Monopoly money only has value when you're playing the game of Monopoly. However, 
Something different happened once when I played Monopoly with my wife. It was a couple years after we had gotten married, and we decided to play Monopoly, and the game got a little bit competitive. And so um, I was trying to build my real estate empire. I really wanted to build hotels on Marvin Gardens, but my wife had Marvin Gardens as a property. So I was trying to find things that she would be willing to trade for Marvin Gardens. I offered Monopoly money. I offered um, different properties that I had. And my wife thought about it for a little bit. And because she's shrewd, like the dishonest manager in the parable, she told me, I'll trade you Marvin Gardens, but I'll trade you for tomorrow night, when it's, my, when it's my turn to do the dishes, you do the dishes instead. And I was like, what? Is, is that even legal in Monopoly? And because I really wanted to win the game of Monopoly, I thought about it and I said, okay, sure. I'll, I'll trade you for that for Marvin Gardens. Now, the reason why my wife is shrewder than I am is that she was able to take temporary management over a fictitious asset that had no value outside of the game, and she was able to transform that into something that truly mattered, which in this case was a, a night of dishes. And certainly she was very glad that that trade happened the next night, and I was not so glad. This is the principle of shrewd management. Transforming a temporary resource like our time, our talent, or our money, or our possessions, into something of lasting value. It is ultimately, in the words of one Christian missionary, Jim Elliott, giving what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Now, this is why this parable of the dishonest manager comes right after the parable of the prodigal son. Because just on its own, if we had this parable without any context, we might be tempted to misinterpret this parable. Maybe uh, to just think of it as investing advice or how to amass more wealth or comfort for ourselves. How to pull a fast one on our spouse on game night. But Jesus emphasis, emphasizes in verse 9 that he is showing us how to live life and make wise choices in a very particular way. And he says in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's the eternal dwelling that comes to mind? Well, coming right after the parable of the prodigal son, the eternal dwelling that we think of first is the Father's house of grace that everyone is invited to, to be restored, to be reunited in relationship into the love of the Father that we were created for. And you see, this parable of the dishonest manager gives us a new perspective of looking at what was going on in the parable of the prodigal son. As we talked about in the last series, the father in the parable of the prodigal son made the hard decision to let go of his son, let go of the inheritance to release it. And he did it not because he had to, but he refused to allow money, a temporary resource, to become something that 
was a permanent bitter division between him and his son. And he knew that his only hope of helping his son to come to a census, of changing his son's heart, was to release the money to his son so that his son could learn that the money that he was obsessed over, the things that he wanted to do with that money, would ultimately come to nothing. And they would be worth nothing in comparison to how precious his relationship with his father was and the joy of his father's house. In essence, the father used his money with shrewdness to ultimately win the heart of his son. And we see the ways that the father used his time while his son was gone. The father was out every day scanning the horizon, looking for his son. And when his son appeared returning, the father saw him far off when he was distant. He was probably praying for his son to return. And he hitches up his robe, runs out. And then we see the father using all of his resources to welcome the son home. Puts the finest robe on his son puts a ring on his son's finger that signifies that the, that the son is reunited into the family and is in good standing, throws a party so that every part of the celebration emphasizes to the son that the son is welcome home to the house of grace. It was for the son's joy and it was for the father's joy. The father used temporary possessions to make an eternal impact on the life of his son. And through the example of the father and the prodigal son, through this parable about the dishonest manager, Jesus is teaching us to use all the wealth that has been entrusted to us, our time, our talents, our resources, and to use them in a way that helps other people to experience the amazing grace of God. That's why God has entrusted us with time and talent and resources, not just for this life, not just to make ourselves more comfortable, but to help people find their way home to an eternal dwelling, to God's house of grace. So let me highlight two important lessons from this teaching. First, this parable, what Jesus is teaching, only makes sense if we recognize that this life is not all that there is. If there really is an eternal dwelling that we will get to experience and that others are able to experience. And I want to suggest that even if you're not a Jesus follower, even if you're still figuring out what you believe about Jesus, that there is something in all of our hearts that knows that it is true that this life is not all that there is. Um, as the Bible says, God has put eternity into our hearts. And this also comes from the parable of the prodigal son, because one of the signposts that this life is not all that there is, is the presence of grace in our lives. Grace doesn't make sense in a world that this is all there is. Grace doesn't make sense in a survival of the fittest dog-eat-dog -dog world. And yet grace is what we all desperately need. And when we experience grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness, don't we think this is the way that the world is supposed to be? This is what I was made for. Because when we experience grace, we are experiencing heaven breaking into earth. We are experiencing a taste of eternity, a taste of God's love that we were made for.
And if we acknowledge that God's love is real and eternity is real, then how can anything in this life be more important? How foolish it would be to settle for, you know, trying to get our name in lights or trying to get our name on a building or trying to increase the number in a bank account as if that was the most important thing. All these things are temporal and within a hundred years, when we pass away, there's not a single person that is going to remember the significance about any of these temporal things. But when we realize that we have the potential to make an eternal impact, how could we not make that the most important thing in our lives? And then the second lesson, if eternal dwellings are real, if eternity is real, if life is not all that there is, then it causes us to look at our choices differently. We are choice makers. We choose how we spend our time, our talent, and our resources. And we all have the opportunity right where we're at to start to use these gifts that God has entrusted to us in ways that make a difference for eternity. We all spend our time on something, whether we're going to school, going to work, time with our family, time in recreation. And in the way that we spend our time, do we spend it mostly for our own goals, our own agenda? Are we thinking of the people around us as incidental? If we're going to school, are the, our classmates uh, maybe people that are competing with us, maybe will affect the curve? but we're primarily focused on our, old, our own goals and trying to achieve in a certain way and then move on to the next stage. And even more so at work. When we're at work, do we view our coworkers as stepping stones or obstacles to our career progression? Or do we see the people around us as infinitely precious and infinitely valued to God and recognize that we have the capacity and the opportunity to either move them closer to experiencing the love and the grace of God by how we spend our time and our resources in their lives or by our, our lack of attention to them and our lack of care, we can actually move them away from an experience of knowing that they matter to God and that they matter in eternity. The same thing applies to our talents and our capabilities. We may not always have a choice, but if we do and when we do, we should be looking for opportunities to use our gifts, our skills, our expertise in ways that connect people to God's goodness, to do justice for those who are in need, to work for good and thriving in ways that matter in God's kingdom. And there are so many different ways to do this. It may actually affect the job that we choose to take. It may affect the industry that we decide to work in. It may affect our choice on how we use our volunteer time so that we can bring our skills and gifts and expertise to bear in a way that matters for eternity. But ultimately, we need to ask ourselves that question. Are we using the talents that God has given us in a way that honors him and helps other people to come to know him? And finally, we have our, a choice to use our finances in the same way. You know, generosity isn't about being generous with our friends so that they're generous back to us and that money all stays in the same circle. And it's certainly not about just, you know, feeling obligated to give so that God doesn't think we're stingy and he doesn't 
kind of get us because, you know, we aren't, we aren't giving or aren't generous. Instead, generosity, as we see it in this parable of this manager, is an opportunity for, for us to help someone else experience God's goodness and God's grace, to give them an opportunity to move into an eternal dwelling that will be for their joy and for our joy. What I love about NBCC is that this community is filled with amazing individuals who are living out the truth of this passage in all kinds of practical and remarkable ways. That's what the church should be. We should be inspiring and encouraging each other to follow Jesus in the way that we live our lives. And as we close, I want to highlight um, the way that this looks through one individual and through our community. Mike Lewick is a partner here at NBCC. Uh, He's a building inspector for San Jose. He and his wife, Sherry, have uh, three young boys at home, so they have plenty to keep them busy. But he is also someone whose life has been transformed by the grace of God. He'll say that actually when he grew up going to church, he didn't experience the grace of God through that church. And it actually moved him away from church for many years. He tried out many different religions. But finally, as an adult, after he was married, God's grace and love broke through into his life. He recognized his own need for grace and it transformed every part of his life, transformed his relationships, transformed his view of himself. And God has given him a passion because of that, of seeing that same transformation in the lives of others. For the last six months, he's led a volunteer effort with a team from NBCC to completely renovate an apartment that will be used for crisis transitional housing. It's an apartment that is a part of a complex called Grace Village, which is run by a Christian nonprofit called City Team. And we've partnered with City Team in this work. Mike has invested and committed his time. He's, over the last six months, he, he's given Saturday after Saturday uh, to, to do this work as the project leader. He's used his experience and expertise in building and construction to make this apartment an extraordinary place of quality and refuge. He's done this work alongside his oldest son um, and other volunteers, so they get to do this work together. And in part, this work is made possible by the generosity of our entire community. Uh, Our church was able to invest the $30,000 that was needed for all the materials for this renovation, renovation so this work could go forward. Here's a photo of Mike working on the restoration as it's happening. Um, And here's a photo of what the unit will look like when it is done. It'll be finished within the coming month. And we are so excited. And this is what Jesus promises to Mike and to all those who have contributed in big and small ways. Because of the intentional choice to use money and time and talent in this way, the families that stay in this unit, women traumatized by domestic violence, families in crisis needing a place to catch their breath, they will experience 
the reality that God's grace has provided a place for them. And Jesus promises that the joy of this dwelling on earth is just a foretaste of an eternal dwelling. That there is a place in eternity where Mike's joy will be magnified because of the people that show up in God's house. People that he may have never even met, but who have had their lives transformed because of what Mike was willing to give, because of the love and care he poured in to this renovation, because of the impact that it will make on people's lives. This will be a part of Mike's eternal joy of every single person who has been a part of this project. Their joy, his joy, our joy. All of this is encapsulated in a prayer written into the foundation of the unit. This is what the prayer reads. May this home be a home of peace, joy, healing, salvation from generation to generation until the coming of the Lord. As we close, I want you to know the reason why all this is possible, why God's grace is possible in our lives, why we have an opportunity to live in a way that makes a difference in eternity is because Jesus is the example, is the one to whom the dishonest manager in the parable actually points to. Because Jesus is the one who was truly rich. And for our sake, he gave up all of his riches and became poor so that his wealth could pass on to us. He is the one that stepped from eternity into time. And in his time on earth, he used all that he had in, uh, to be able to proclaim the love and mercy of God, to demonstrate it in his words and his actions and his power. And ultimately on the cross, Jesus is the one that canceled all of the debts that we had. He didn't just cancel 50% of our debt. He didn't cancel 20% of our debt. He canceled 100% of our debts so that we could be made right with God, brought into relationship with God, that we could experience the love of the Father. And Jesus could call us friends for eternity. This is the work that Jesus has done that expresses the full measure of God's heart. It's for his joy, for our joy, so that our joy could be complete. And now, as those who follow Jesus, the best investment that we can possibly make with our time and talent and resources is to connect other people to the goodness of God. The way that we do it may look different from the way that someone else does it. It's not about comparing ourselves to others. It's about finding ways that God has called us to use the wealth that he's entrusted to us, our time, our talent, and our resources to make a difference in someone else's eternity. For their joy, for our joy, may we be wise in the choices that we make, even this week. In Jesus' name, amen.